The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. And his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers in the back corner to your right. If it is your child's first time in Children's Church, please go with them so that we can get them checked in. Thanks so much, Susan. Well, we are in the middle of a sermon series in First and Second Samuel. It's an Old Testament book. It tells about the history of Israel and the kingship and the throne that God establishes. That that gives a foretaste to uh, King Jesus, His throne, what His kingdom will look like. As we look at this, we're looking at 
First and Second Samuel in a sermon series entitled Dispositions of the Heart. Dispositions of the Heart. Because we look at the heart of King David. What's in there that is commendable, that, that we should long for and be after and be shaped by. What's in there also that we should be aware of for our own selves that, that's in us. And so uh, that's where we're looking at this summer. And to this morning we'll look at a heart of mercy. Here in 1 Samuel 24, we see in David a heart of mercy. A heart of mercy. There's a song by Andy Gullihorn, an artist, and it's titled uh, Weird People. And in this song, he lists what he sees in the world around him. Weird people. He's, he begins by, by this. Uh, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Who in the world discovered that? There are some weird people out there. It could be 15 degrees at a football game. Dudes are wearing nothing but Speedos and body paint. There are some weird people out there. My wife, thank you for the laugh. My wife has been gluten-free for a long time now. She can look straight at a donut and turn it down. There are some weird people out there. We all make resolutions when the year is through, but only 8% of the world actually follows through. There are some weird people out there. And he's making notes of all these people who do things that they don't fit in his paradigms and categories. And then he has this chorus. And the chorus says this. Of all the crazy things to believe, you know, it doesn't really seem like such a reach. That there's no puppeteer pulling the strings, but a higher power wanting the best for me. There's nothing I can prove, but that's okay. I'm not the only fool who landed here. There are some weird people out there. Uh, to believe things and to hold things as tenants up as a part of you will make you do weird things. In the last verse of the song, he says this. I once heard the story of a dad who lost his little girl. And we forgave he still visits her murderer. And at this point, he's taught the listener to fill in. There are some weird people out there. And he goes on to say, all because he follows a guy who does backward things, like touching the sick, like loving the enemies. And he invites you in his silence to fill it in with, there are some weird people out there. There's no better thing that allows us and invites us into the concept of mercy than that. The things that doesn't make sense in our paradigms, our categories, things that are upside down, things that are weird, that's what mercy is. It's weird. And that's what actually what we're invited into. Because it doesn't make sense, we're invited into it. And that's what we see in this morning in David, the heart of mercy, the heart of mercy. And so with that in mind, we'll look at three things. We'll look at uh, where we need it, where we need mercy. Second, what it is. And then third, uh, how we give it. Where we need it, what it is, how we give it. So with that in mind, as we look at this weird thing called mercy, it doesn't make sense, and yet we see it. Let's go to God in prayer. A God of mercy for us. Let's pray. Or would you meet us uh, with a thing called mercy? And when it gets a hold of us, Lord, would it drive us to do things that are so strange and odd 
things that are so deep within us that the reasoning of why behind the what of mercy would be something that we're captivated by. And all of this is because we're praying and coming to you in the name of a guy who lived hundreds and thousands of years ago. And yet, because of his mercy towards us, we're able to have joy in life and freedom. We pray that we'd experience and encounter you, a God of mercy, this morning. Because if we encounter anything else besides that, we're not experiencing the true living God. Spirit of the living God, make that so. We pray in your name. Amen. So first, where we need it. Where we need it. Just some context, some background of where we are, because we're kind of airdropping into First uh, Samuel 24. We see Saul is the king, first king of Israel. First Samuel 8 or 9, uh, people say of Israel, we want a king. And Samuel goes and he finds Saul. He's tall, he's strong, and he's proud. And he's the first king of Israel. S- chapters later, we see actually that pride gets in the way. And God says, you've lost my favor and my anointing. I'm actually, I'm out, Saul. You, you're self-interested as king. And so they go and they see uh, this person named Jesse, Samuel does. And God says, one of Jesse's sons will be the next king. And they go from the top down, the strongest, the oldest, the best looking. And God says, it's not him. It's not him. It's not him. As they go younger and younger and finally they get to David, the youngest of the family, the runt, the shepherd boy, who's not even counted as the first uh, batch of candidates. And God says, that's my guy. He's king. And so Samuel there anoints David, the shepherd boy. And from that point forward, David has nothing but success. He wins victories. Uh, Goliath happens right after that. All these different things. But he also has the favor of the people. And that drives Saul crazy. And in fact, all of Saul's kind of inner circle is saying, David's going to take you over. He's going to take you out. Therefore, you should kill him. He's trying to do a coup. And so Saul, with out relent, goes after David, and he's going to kill David. And David runs into the hills, into the caves, and finds hiding and safety and shelter. And that's where we find ourselves. So there, as Saul is trying to get David, kill David, annihilate this threat that is to his kingship as this paranoid king, he at some point has to do like we all do on long road trips. He has to find the next exit of the bathroom and relieve himself. And he goes into a cave. There's hundreds of caves, and he chooses this one cave. And in that cave, David and all of his men are there. He doesn't know that. So he goes in, it's potty time, and he uses the restroom. And David's men see this and say, He's right there. David, if you do, if you if you go and kill him, everything will be great. Go take him out. And they kind of have used this God stamp of justification and say, well, God said this, and therefore you should do it. And David goes up and cuts, doesn't kill him, but, but cuts his robe, this cloak, just the corner of it, and holds on to it. We'll stop there. Now, David has this chance to kill him. Here's the place where David is. He has an opportunity where he's justified to take Saul out. He would gain much from it, and he has this chorus of support. 
right? So David, he's justified. Saul is trying to kill him. Therefore, he should kill Saul. Kill or be killed. He's justified in doing it. He has this opportunity right there. Saul has no idea that, that David is right there about to maybe kill him. He's vulnerable for attack. Opportunity. Gain. If David killed Saul, he would be king right then, right there. Support. All of David's men are saying, you should do it. You should do it. Now, the last time you were hiding in a cave from someone who was trying to kill you, and you see them use the restroom, it probably wasn't yesterday, right? That's an ancient historical fact and story. It did happen, and yet it loses its weight in relevance to modernity. So what is a chance that you have of an opportunity where you're justified, where you have great gain potentially there with a chorus of support? What does that look like for us in 2023? Gossip. Gossip. It's the thing we use when someone's not present to speak about them in a justified manner and take them out where we gain much. And often the times when we share, people will be on our side, not theirs. And to, to highlight this point, let's look at the orator of our generation, the mouthpiece of our generation, Michael Scott. And in the office, Michael Scott, this manager who just wants to be included on everything, right? He said, I, I love inside jokes. You know, I hope to be a part of one one day. And he said in, in an episode entitled Gossip, he said this. After learning of an extramarital relationship that one of his employees, Stanley, has, and he exclusively knows, no one else knows, what does he do? Does he tell Stanley no? Does he keep it to himself? No. He goes to every single employee one by one and tells them just to see the thrill in their eyes. And at the end of the episode, he says this. He says, I'm very happy right now, thrilled perhaps to be a part of the office, to be a part of the conversation. When you have somebody's attention and their eyes are lighting up because they're very interested in what you have to say, that's a great feeling, and I experienced that firsthand today. It's wonderful to be at the center of attention. And isn't that true of gossip? Shining the light on somebody else that then comes and re kind of turns back on you, the spotlight does, where you get the acclaim and the gain gossip is. And in fact, that's while it's a social reality, and even the water we swim in. Gossip is something that's much deeper. In Fortune magazine, there's this uh, article entitled, Gossiping at Work is Complicated. What a thought. It, it says this. It says, when engaging in gossip and feeling a sense of closeness, the brain releases dopamine or the feel-good chemical. That release makes us lean in closer and share some of the guarded of our guarded tea. Feeling bonded also releases oxytocin, a hormone associated with feeling of trust and bonding. And Dr. Scott Lyons says, people choose to divulge things dramatically versus narratively to grab our attention quicker, giving the brain a heightened response of excitement. He says, it's a, a strategy to bring people close in without the vulnerability of intimacy, but 
it can also cause a stress response, especially if the information feels negative or causes you to worry about what it means for the future. We're actually rather contributing and upping the ante of our own stress and angst, Lyon says, albeit masked by the initial excitement of connection. Your brain is wired to get something by taking someone out. You gain from it. And yet what it says is it's unraveling and it will kill you. It's inverted on itself. That merciless living where you're justified with an opportunity to take someone out, where you gain with a support around you, doesn't end well for the other person. And it doesn't end well for you and for I. So with that wetting your whistle, where do you need mercy to be a prescription? Where do you need mercy to be the thing that you give out instead of something else? And like David in a cave that's turned into a port john there with his enemy right there before him. Like David, maybe you have an opportunity to win at the cost of another. And maybe you're justified in doing so. And in fact, there's a great gain in it for you. And in fact, actually, it would be socially acceptable because of the support you have of the people around you. Where do we need it? We need mercy because people are a threat to you and I. And we need it because we are a threat to ourselves. So with that in mind, what is this mercy thing? How do we grasp this mercy thing? So first, what is mercy not? What is mercy not? Mercy is not being a Southerner. That's socially acceptable, but it really isn't much of substance and depth. Uh, mercy is not letting people off the hook because at some point, bitterness will grow in you because of some deferred judgment. that You feel like you got the short end of the stick and they didn't. Bitterness will grow. And mercy is not letting things off of the hook, letting things go. Because then all of a sudden you're realizing, I think wrong is winning and evil is winning and friction is winning. What is mercy? Here David chooses mercy, and what he does is he doesn't ignore the transgression against him by Saul. And he doesn't alter the transgression against him by Saul. David looks exactly at what has happened that is wrong, and he calls it wrong. And that should help you as we define mercy. Uh, the, the, the invitation to the Christian life that's marked by mercy doesn't have you minimize things that are real and hard and dark and wrong but in fact, it invites you to call it exactly what it is. Mercy doesn't ask you to have no boundaries or to continue to let wrong be present. The spiritual truth of mercy actually calls you to call wrong, wrong, evil, evil, friction, friction, whatever it may be, whatever level. And all because Jesus is concerned about you. Jesus is saying, here's mercy that you should give out because he wants you to know the freedom that mercy gives. And all of it is because he's inviting us to understand and grasp the truth of when you give out mercy, you know a freedom because God is the one writing the story. What is mercy? Freeing your heart to know God is the one writing the story. Therefore, I don't have to. Therefore, I don't have to exact judgment, payment, 
restitution. And if you don't think God is right in the story, then of course it makes sense to take things in your own hand and control them. Of course it makes sense to push an agenda to make sure you have everything you need and it's accomplished. Of course it makes sense that when things are not going your way, that anxiousness ensues and paranoia ensues and unrest ensues. But what we see in David is that he has a complete trust in God writing the story that is a good one. Therefore, he can give mercy. And we see it in everything he does. When, when his men say, hey, you should kill Saul. He goes up, cuts his robe, comes back to his men. And here's what he says. He doesn't say, I could have done it, didn't do it, look at me. He says, the Lord forbid that I should do anything to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. He's saying, unlike Simba, I just can't wait to be king. I know my time is coming. It's God's throne, therefore it's God's timing. God is writing the story. Therefore, I don't have to be the executioner and the mercenary to propel myself forward. And what's amazing here is the humility of David. Who is the Lord's anointed in this scenario? It is not Saul. It's David. And yet, he trusts God's timing as God writes a story. That's what he says to his men. Now, what does he say to Saul? Again, he doesn't say, hey, you're good. I'd have done the same thing if I were you. You know, he says, he says this. He goes to Saul, holds up the cloak that he cut off, part of the cloak, and he says this in verse 11 and on. See, my father, the guy who's trying to kill him, he calls him his father. See the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord, get this, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. How can David not kill Saul? Because his hand is not against him because the Lord's the one writing the story. He holds the garment and says, you don't have to worry about me. A heart of mercy is one that's softened enough to know the one who's writing the story has my best interest in mind, good in mind for myself and everything around me. And because of that, everything I will do filters through that grid. There's a Croatian theologian. He's from Croatia. And in uh, being from Croatia, he witnessed atrocities of, of people coming and uh, murdering people and pillaging villages. And also, he's a theologian. His name is Miroslav Volf. And in a book called Exclusion and Embrace, he says this about those two realities as a theologian who's witnessed atrocities when it comes to mercy. He says this, he says, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Right? To be merciful, you have to understand that there's a belief in divine vengeance. He says, My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West. But imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we shouldn't retaliate? 
Why not? I say, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. David looks at the wrong and calls it wrong and yet extends mercy because he knows, I know God will write the story in such a way that no injustice, no wrong will go undone untouched, unsettled. And if we apply that to our lives, there's there's people in this room, right? If we just went off statistics, they would tell a story. But people are more than just statistics. That in this room, there is a scroll of things of transgressions, not very big, minute, right? Again, friction. And then it would grow, into things that are big, like just real real sins against you. And then actually it would maybe go to the next category of deep atrocities that you have experienced. In fact, you bear scars of evil against you. And so when we hear that, hey, give out mercy because God will give out the, the punishment and divine vengeance, and he will be the one to settle accounts. I don't like that. I don't like it because actually what that thought of mercy does is it plucks myself out of the driver's seat. It doesn't allow me to be the power broker. It actually asks me to step away from the pen that writes the story, all because God is the one doing it. That's a hard thing to do. And yet the invitation of mercy is that that is where true freedom is found. actually invites you into a better story. Not to one that mulls over the transgressor, not mulls over the transgression, but instead invites you into a new story that says, I see you exactly where you are and what has happened is wrong. And I am writing a story, God says. Mercy says, you don't have to have the last word. And even though that's hard, it frees us because God will. That's what mercy is. How do we give out that kind of mercy? It's hard. Naturally, we don't do it. It doesn't flow from us. So how do we do it? How do we get a hold of it to give it out? In Matthew 18, there's a parable called the unmerciful servant. And Peter says, hey, Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone? Give me a quantity to it. And he says, um, 70 70 times 7. You know, it just gives us kind of multiplying number of, hey, you don't stop forgiving, Jesus says. And he tells a story. He says there's this uh, master, and this master has a servant, and the servant has a debt to the master of just this astronomical amount that is uh, unpayable, right? It's so much. It's 10,000 bags of silver and gold. And the master says, hey, you owe me some money, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take you, throw you in jail, I'm going to take your family and all your stuff, and it's mine now servant says, please, please have mercy on me. And what does the master do? He has mercy. He says, okay, I see your debt and I hear your request for mercy. I will give it. There's the door. You're free to go. 
later on, we hear about this um, freed up servant who had a big debt that got absolved and freed from. And he has a servant of his who owes him this minute, tiny debt. And this one servant who's been forgiven looks at the servant who owes him and says, you owe me this. And in fact, I'm going to put you in jail. I'm going to take all of your things until I get what I am due. The master hears about the unforgiving, unmerciful servant that he's been merciful to. He says, no, no, come back to me. I'm going to make you pay everything that I freed you up from. I was merciful to you and you weren't merciful to others. Now, that's scary. That's terrifying. And it's not in the way of you should be afraid. It shouldn't just strike fear into your heart as the only main thrust. That's not the point of the parable. Jesus doesn't really motivate by, um, by fear and shame. It's not his game. The reason that this story is scary is because what we see in this servant, the unmerciful servant, is he begged for mercy to get out of his debt and not to experience freedom. And if we're honest, if you're like me, much of my life is that. That I beg God for mercy to get out of where I am and find relief more than I long for relationship. And in fact, the call of mercy is, it's inviting us to know freedom so full that we give it out. Tim Keller said this, he said, uh, mercy isn't just the job of the Christian, mercy is the mark of the Christian. So if we are called to be marked by it, to know it, to have it in us, to give it out, how? How does it happen? Now, in high school, we helped a friend of ours, all of our friends helped a friend of ours move. And she moved into this house. And as we were unloading boxes, we saw there's a stump in the, in the front yard this big, about two or three feet in diameter. And there's nothing, there's no mountain too tall for high school boys when they're in a the group. So we thought, we're going to come and take this thing out. I, I own a shovel. And so we went to their house. And we um, pulled up in, in the truck I drove. It's my dad's truck. And... Um, we had the tools in the back and we kind of digged up, uh, dug up the, um, the dirt around this stump, began to hack away at it. And all of a sudden, uh, it was winning. And in fact, it won. We tried to dig it up. At one point we, we, we put a rope on it and tied it to, to this truck and floored it. And the stump didn't move and the truck eventually didn't move either. My dad had to replace the transmission two years ago, but that's, it's, it's very unrelated. The stump was going nowhere. We eventually just burned it for him. Now, what does that have to do with mercy? The truth is, trees have uh, branches and trunks and shade and a canopy. That's what you see. That's the visible. That's the beautiful part of trees. And yet the invisible, the unseen part of trees is that underneath, two to three times the size of the canopy is the size of the roots. And the invitation for mercy and the call and model for mercy in the Christian life is in order to give it out, in order to have shade and branches and fruit that everyone else can see, there has to be the unseen reality of two or three times of that amount that you have rooted in that are beautiful and healthy. Simply put, in order to give out 
mercy, you have to have it deep within you. So deep that you actually have an abundance of it to give out. That you know it's so deep inside of you. You have to have a heart of mercy like David has. But you have to have a heart of mercy like Jesus has. The person with a true heart of mercy. Because in, in 1 Samuel 24, we see David. And we see David, he is running as an innocent man. And here he's calling out to Saul, who's wrongly pursuing him. And yet in Jesus, the person of mercy, we see he's an innocent man who's being wrongly pursued, and yet he lets himself be wrongly pursued, wrongly taken over, wrongly killed. Why? Because of mercy. First Samuel 24, we see that David cut the robe and spared Saul. And yet on the cross, what do we see? We see Jesus being killed, being not spared, and yet what happens to his robe? It's not cut. It's actually it's given up in lots. The people take it from him. Where David gave mercy because he knew God was writing the story, Jesus said, I'm going to not receive mercy because I know God is writing the story. All of these things because the true heart of mercy is in Jesus. What does he say on the cross to those who are slamming the nail into his hands? Father, forgive them. At the cross and on the cross, we see the person of mercy dish out mercy. And that changes us because we see it's all for you. And it's all for me. That on the cross, we see actually the very soil for us to know everything we have that's pinned against us, that has us dead to rights, just like Saul was, we're freed from. It's paid for. That mercy has met us. Our sin has met its match in the mercy that's been extended to us. And therefore, the more we know our sin, the more we know mercy, and the more we know mercy, the more we give it out when we encounter sin. It flows from us all because we have encountered the person of mercy. And when you know mercy, you know freedom. And we all long to be more free. And God is inviting us into freedom through the fact that he's purchased everything for us in his son. Every bit of mercy we need finds us, changes us, and sends us out. All because we have been dealt with mercifully. Let's pray. Lord, if, if I look at my life, I certainly have a deep desire to be more free. I want freedom. And if I look at my life, I have a, do not have a deep desire to be merciful. And yet you have attached those two things so together that's knit, not just in the fibers of your invitation to the Christian life, but you've actually knit it into the fibers of the cosmos and into our hearts. This very day, when we look at the avenues in which we should apply mercy to, we need you to meet us and change our hearts. May we look at Jesus in it all, the person of mercy, the person of compassion, the person of forgiveness, 
I mean, that changed us. It'd be the starting place. We pray that's all because we long to know freedom all the more. Give us mercy, we pray in your name, Jesus. You have walked out of the tomb. May we walk out with you. We pray in your name. Amen. We pray that's all because we long to know freedom all the more. Give us mercy, we pray in your name, Jesus. You have walked out of the tomb. May we walk out with you. We pray in your name. Amen.